And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've been around political journalism all my life. I've seen a lot of great reporters uh, print and broadcast uh, over those years. John Dickerson really belongs in that class of great, thoughtful, uh, insightful reporters. Uh, That was true when he was at Time magazine uh, for 12 years. It's been true in his work for Slate uh, and now as host of Face the Nation. He's also the host of Slate's Political Gab Fest, uh, a very popular podcast, and one of his own called Whistle Stop uh, that uh, goes into the history of some of uh, America's most interesting uh, presidential campaigns. Uh, And now he's turned that into a book by the same name, uh, which comes out in August. I had a chance to sit down with John at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia to talk about this current campaign, uh, his career, and his upcoming book. John Dickerson, welcome. You know, um, in uh, in reading your story, um, I, I, had, I saw echoes of my own life because we both had, in different realms, mothers who were successful, pursued careers single-mindedly, uh, and um, uh, and maybe sometimes to the detriment of kids um and uh, you know my mother uh named me she says because she thought it would look good in a byline which was embarrassing to me later when i actually became a reporter because i didn't want to feel like it was i was fulfilling her destiny your mom Nancy Dickerson was a ubiquitous presence on television when I was growing up. Um, did you? Did she inculcate you with this mission to be a journalist? She must have, although, uh, as you say, and she, I resist. I, you know, I strongly resisted it and her for a period of time. I mean, I when my parents divorced, I moved out and lived with my dad basically from age thirteen, and that was it. You know, and then I went to college, and that was the end of it. So, um, if you had told me at age thirteen or fourteen that I would end up being a journalist, I would have laughed in your face. I would have gone on at uh, length about how that was. There was no way that was going to happen. If you told me I was then going to work on the show that she had started on at, um, right, she was an assistant producer or right. something on Face the Nation. Yes, she was. I guess they called it associate in production in the kind of antique title on the very first program, and she helped. Uh, book uh senator joe mccarthy she was from wisconsin and had um so she you know like bobby kennedy who had worked for mccarthy she had complicated feelings about joe mccarthy obviously it was not a at that point mccarthy was a mess on the show he actually went and insulted um uh his fellow senators in a way that you know you thought he'd already insulted them enough he took it to a new a new level um but anyway, she got the booking. So because of this relationship she had with him, because she was from Wisconsin, so she um, did you go back and look at that show? Yeah, I did. And he uh, he calls it a, the the Senate inquiry into him a lynch bee, which is an expression we don't use anymore. But um, you know, basically, he had a thread of relationship with his fellow senators, and that just cut it. I mean, that was it when he said it was a a, a, a lynching. Um, One of the senators he had a relationship with was Jack Kennedy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and Bobby had worked for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, so um, yeah, it was <laughs> it was complicated. That first show is a great uh, antique of television, by the way. Just the 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 kind of low quality. Um, and yet it's basically the same show, just questioning politicians. I just, um, uh, I, I should know this, but who was the host of the first show? Uh, uh, oh, hold on. Jeb Cadu is the, is the St. Louis editor who's on the, um, oh no, what's his name? <laughs> hold on. Already hard questions. Yes, I've... I know. Hold on. <laughs> I, I, oh man, we'll have to, uh, it escapes me at the moment, but um, 
this is my hope for so you. This is my hope for you that, that 50 years from now, people will remember who the host was when Barack <laughs> Obama appeared on Face the Nation there in is, July of 2016. There's only one host, really, and that's Bob Schieffer. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, uh, um, uh, it'll come to me. But we'll be in the middle of another conversation. And okay. I will blurt it out. All right. Um, but anyway, so how? so when did you realize that this is what you wanted to do yeah so i i I went to college i was i i um, went to the university of virginia i wanted to study government um politics i loved it and then i um i had why did you love it did you oh because i think that's a good question so i like the idea of legislation and and the you know the the romance of when things used to get done in washington um of presidents proposing something and then congress fighting back and and I must have gotten that from my mom and just growing up and hearing her tell stories um, and learning about also, you know, reading the Federalist Papers was – and the, just the foundational ideas of the country for me was um, something I just loved. Did you think at any point of actually being involved in politics? No. I'm not sure what the end game was for me. I had no I, uh, I had no conception of how it would end really. Um, and and the the other horse I was riding at the time was was uh, a, a love of English literature. So um, that was part of what I liked about politics too was the narrative arc of things. You know, mm-hmm. um, the rise and fall of of complicated men in that case. In you know, in most of our history. Um, and so then I went swerved way off into English and spent all my time um, studying English literature. Um, and really invested a lot of uh, energy in that. And then suddenly I was graduated and, and had to get a job. I hate when that happens. Yeah. And um, I, I, um, I didn't know whether I wanted to go to law school or be an English professor. But I needed a job. So um, my girlfriend, now wife, uh, uh, was moving to New York. And I thought, well, I need a job. And so um, my, I, uh, I became a secretary at Time, Inc. just because uh, there was an election, and I thought I might be able to do something having to do, do with the election. Once I saw the way they wrote stories at Time, which was a little bit more literary than in other kinds of news, I just kind of fell in love with it. And this was in 92? Yeah, this mm-hmm. was the 92 race. I went in 91, but it was in preparation for the 92 race. Um, and uh, through a quirk, I got involved in a little video they used to give away with subscriptions to Time magazine. It was on the election of 92, and as a part of that, there was an interview series with Hugh Seide. Mm-hmm. Um, Legendary yeah, Washington correspondent. Exactly. Wrote the presidency for Life magazine, the presidency column for Life magazine, and, um, and also for time. And so I spent all this was, of course, in the pre-digital age when you had time to spend with people. You weren't constantly filing or tweeting or responding to the same. And so I spent all this time with Hugh Seide and listening to his stories about the characters, but also leadership about, I mean, I remember something he said in 1991 about presidential decision-making that comes back to me all the time. He was quoting Kissinger, who said, as a president, you can never get enough information. Mm -hmm. You'll always be taking in information, but at the end, you just have to leap. And encapsulating in that notion of decision-making what President Obama talks about when he says, you know, one decision may have a 60% chance of going wrong, and the other will have a 50% chance of going wrong. And you have to pick between the two. It's always a, it's never a dead certainty with a president. Yeah, well, first of all, everything that comes there is monstrously complicated. O- Obama always says, if it were uh, not complicated, somebody else would have taken care of it. So they bring, you know, everything. You have to be the Solomonic figure who ever, who has to deal with the complicated stuff. And... Um, you know, one of his qualities that I think has been served him well is the ability to make a decision and live with that decision because you're making consequential decisions all the time and some of them are going to go wrong. And if, But if, you, if you're standing on that 40-foot diving board having to make the decision, if, if you look down and worry about uh, whether, how it's going to work out uh, too much, you can't make decisions. And uh, so Secretary Gates talks about that with respect to President Obama. He wasn't sure a guy who had not come from an executive background um, was going to be able to make decisions. And um, in talking to him several different times about the president's decision making, he said, he you know, he was surprised and affirmed that he has no problem making decisions. We obviously know the alternative case where you had presidents who 
you know, kept ho- holding rolling conversations about decisions that they never got made because they were always seeking for that next piece of information that would finally make the decision easier. None of the decisions are easy. Yeah, know? no, 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 no. So, um, you, so there you were at Time Magazine. You did this, uh, you did this video, and then you, you went and covered the Hill. Was- yeah, I, so I, uh, to, just to fill in the gap in between, because it was such a great period of my life, is that um, there was a bank called the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which was a yes. Pakistani bank, mm-hmm. which um, was a part of drug running, uh, funding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which you could argue was funding the beginning of al-Qaeda. Um, there was uh, weapons dealing, and the two investigative reporters at time uh, – wrote about it, and then went to write a book, and I became their researcher. So I got the keys to the file cabinet, which was a great... And then time needed somebody to cover the story, and nobody under, could understand the story because it was so complicated. It included Clark Clifford, the yes. counselor to presidents. Um, brought him down. Brought him down, exactly. And um, so that's how I snuck my way into the magazine, was basically I was the only one who could who could do all this stuff. Um, and included, we had a... There was a terrorist who was a who had been a source for the book, who came to New York. It was also being investigated by the, the New York district attorney, so I got to hang out with them. So I was hanging out with a lot of great and interesting people, terrorists, cops, uh, people in the DA's office, in that early period, and that was um, that's how I got to get into Great time. preparation for covering Congress. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then they sent me down, actually, to Washington in 95 to cover economics, which I had covered Wall Street for time in New York just because I was the youngest person. They would put me on anything that was happening, and the market was jumping up and down. So one day, I'd, one week, I'd cover the baseball strike. The next week, the World Trade Center bombing, the first one. And then I did a lot of Wall Street stuff. So they thought, okay, well, we'll send you to cover economics. The class that I got the lowest grade in in college was, was economics. Um, but I had to cover that for two years, which meant basically the Hill and covering the budget, you know, Ways and Means and the Budget Committee – and then also the Clinton White House, um, uh, which is where I got to know Gene Sperling, which is the uh, – uh, when. so that was a great um, but brutal period. Yeah. I, uh, you arrived there just in the midst of a like, momentous transition in Congress. That was at the time of the Gingrich Revolution in 1994. Uh, what, was, what was that upheaval like? It was um, well. It was the, it was great because so much was going on. I mean, we think about it covering Congress now. You know, there's just not there's not much happening. This was both there was pushing legislation with the hundred days. This was about transformation. This is Gingrich at his most uh, rhetorically expansive, but also stuff was happening. He just won this big election, so you had to take him seriously. Um, he won it, and Bill Clinton had to reassess his approach because he had a re-election coming. Exactly. So he had an impetus to get some things done. Too. Exactly, and had to reassert his primacy in the constitutional right. system. Remember when he said, you know, the president is still relevant. Um, right. So, right, and then you have the deal on welfare that's taking place. Meanwhile, while you have Gingrich ascendant, you have Bob Dole trying to run. Dole right. being arguably the kind of Republican Gingrich is running against. Yeah. But then by the time Dole is... Uh, by the time Dole is ascended, Dole is a majority leader. A majority leader of the Senate, wanting to run for president in 1996, worried about Phil Graham running from within the Senate as a more conservative Republican, and then by the time Dole is on his rise, Gingrich has become such a problem that Clinton is running ads with the two of them in the same uh, frame. Yeah. Well, and they had the big uh, showdown on the government shutdown over uh, cuts in Medicare and environmental protection and so on exactly um do you when you you're a student of history i know you arrived in washington after gingrich really took over the republican caucus um from bob michael do you i mean i kind of trace back the sort of the beginning of the kind of acrimony that we see today to that uh, that sort of hard-edged insurgency that Gingrich led there. Um, do you have that sense? Yeah, I mean, not what, to you. Know, I like Newt. I mean, I, he's an interesting guy. And, well, it's funny because Newt ultimately gets 
uh, run out by what he created. I mean, he called the conservatives who were running him out cannibals, yeah. uh, which is really not that different from what John Boehner said when he said that the false prophets of the of the right had um, uh, had had created this sense in the grassroots that. Um, that they were capitulating all the time on, on their core principles, and therefore he should be thrown out. Well, that's the way it is. One day you sit down for dinner, the next day you are yeah. dinner. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or as, uh, um, uh, who was it? Well, I, the, uh, the other line is, uh, well, yeah, one day you're on the cover of Time, the next day you're doing Time in Washington. <laughs> um, um, Sounds the, like a Chicago guy might have said <laughs> that. But. Um, so I think that's... I think that's right. I mean, what Gingrich was able to do was take backbench complaint and turn it into a political movement. He wasn't just a bomb thrower. He w- he actually made it he he made it something that could transform. So, I think that's I think that's essentially right. Um and then you have the rise of I guess the other thing I'm thinking about in terms of what's made it difficult is you have the rise of Ted Cruz, the rise of Somebody who can come in and not have to worry about seniority can create their own base of support outside of the power structure in the Senate and basically do as they please until the Republican convention where he yeah. may have gone one step too far. But I think that's another contributing factor, which is you can now – you now no longer need a committee chairmanship the way you used to. You no longer need to have actually produced legislation, and you no longer need the good graces of the majority leader. In fact, it's not too bad to be in a fight with the majority leader. And that, to me, feels like – because Gingrich was saying, we're going to have a revolution, and then we're going to do a bunch of stuff. Ted Cruz is not saying, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. It's mostly, right. let me stop. Now, of course, he's got a um, – he, he had a president against whom he was pushing. Right. But, I mean, I think what's held the Republican Party together, although you point out there's all this intramural scuffling, uh, has been antipathy toward Obama and uh, what – held that convention together last week in Cleveland as we sit here today in Philadelphia was uh, antipathy toward Obama and Hillary Clinton. But when you strip that away, there's an awful lot of division within that within that party. It's a very incoherent party right now. Well, when your majority leader of the Senate who delivered the Senate to the Republicans gets booed when he comes on stage, when the previous vice presidential nominee, who's now the Speaker of the House, mentions that he was the vice presidential nominee in 2012, and almost no one claps. Yeah. There's well, that lot. was interesting. Paul Ryan spoke, and he really outlined his vision of where the Republican Party should go, and he did it to almost complete silence. That's right. And the, his vision included Donald Trump not as a whole human being, but merely as a hand that would be there to sign legislation that Paul Ryan brought him. And Trump returned the favor, mentioning Congress not once. This right. is a, supposed to be a unity event, uh, and he doesn't mention working with the Republicans in Congress, which would— just be a rhetorical cliche normally. I mean, you have to almost work in politics to not talk about at a convention how you're going to work with all the Republicans everywhere. I mean, it's just what you're supposed to do. He didn't mention them once. Yeah, well, in fairness to him, you look at the numbers that Congress is running right now and, you know, plague, I think, is several points higher than uh, than than the institution. Yeah. So associating yourself with Congress isn't necessarily the thing to do. Exactly, and especially in the Republican Party, too, where they think that, that Ryan and McConnell sold them out, which is why they were getting such tepid resp- uh, responses from the audience. But we get ahead of ourselves because we're still on the Dickerson story. <laughs> so um, talk about where you went from there because you made, eventually you ended up making this very big transition. Oh, yeah. Well, so we have... Um, the, the other great thing about the covering just the Congress during the Gingrich years is that there was always something going on. You grab a member, you ask him what's going on, you know, and you talk to them, and it's that's the best beat in Washington. Uh, and then you had... Gingrich himself wasn't exactly a guy to hide his... No, his, ex- his thoughts. Exactly. Um, and But so you had... Um, then you had impeachment. Mm-hmm. Then you had the collapse of the Republican uh, leadership. So it was a great time to be covering Congress. What were your impressions of, uh, of Clinton? Uh, did you uh, – both Clintons back in that era? I didn't know them uh, very well um, because I didn't have that much interaction. The way time worked, you were siloed. Mm-hmm. So I, going into the White House, except to have meetings with Gene Sperling uh, or Laura Tyson – 
the ch- chairman of the economic, or I guess she was council. She was, yeah, the um, she was chairman of the council of economic advisors. Council of economic advisors, and also um, she had one other. Uh, she had another, anyway. Yeah, um, she was the economic maiden economic there. right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so I didn't really get a sense of uh, the Clintons. I um, I did go to one small. Um, uh, br- briefing with Hillary Clinton during the Monica Lewinsky early days of the, the revelations about Monica Lewinsky and Hillary Clinton had a group of reporters in to talk about it um, a historian they were bringing to the White House and Richard Hofstetter who's mm-hmm. a fantastic yeah, absolutely um, um, and uh, uh, so of course nobody wanted to talk about history they wanted to talk about what was going on at the moment and I remember asking in like my most earnest kind of <laughs> I remember saying, you know, you said that the truth that a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. So, on the question of Monica Lewinsky, why not just be, you know, fully transparent about everything that's going on about, you know, what the relationship was? Because there were still a lot of questions. Anyway, um, how'd that go? That over? didn't go very well. <laughs> that, that didn't go very well. But I, I remember her at, at least not, you know, having me dismissed from the room. And um, uh, but um, yeah, so then. Uh, covering campaigns and then the Bush White House and now this um, exciting new adventure for the last year at, uh, at Face the Nation. Well, because you are embarked on this exciting new adventure, you'll forgive me if we take a small break for a word from our sponsor. Back with John Dickerson, I want to testify to the fact that he did not consult uh, Google or any other mechanical device and has come up with the answer as to who the first host of Face the Nation was. It was Ted Koop. Uh, and the reason I had such a blockage is because in the show they have remotes. And one of them is this guy, Jep Kadu, who is in Missouri. And um, and they, he calls to him in the remote location. This is big stuff in television, like he's on the moon. So he says, come in, Jep Kadu. Come in, Jep Kadu. And so that first show for me is all associated with come in, Jep Kadu. So. Ted Koop and Jeb Kadu. I mean, yeah. I will say, you know, Face Nation is a great show, but you don't get that anymore. You no, don't get... you don't. They were also, that sounds like a shortstop and second base team you know, does, from yes. the 1940s. Yes, Kadu to Koop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So... Um, Let's talk a little bit about this, um, about about the transition from being a um, a print reporter uh, to to television, and how weird it is that you should end up. We started there uh, about your mom, uh, that you should end up in the medium that made her famous. Yeah, it's um, it's a just from. We'll start with the personal emotional part of it. So I had this really rocky relationship with my mother, which was quite bad for a very long time. Then once I became a journalist... Bad because she was absorbed in what she was doing. She was absorbed in what she was doing. I was an adolescent absorbed in myself. um, As adolescents often are. As they often are. Um, And uh, once I shed that and started to have encounters with the real world and um, the occasional complexities of life, and it wasn't all so black and white the way it is when you're uh, 14... Um, we, we started to become friends and then through, you know, when you've got to write a lead to a story, uh, you know, when she would say, well, here's the way Edward R. Murrow used to say, write a lead. So your first line should be Jesus Christ, listen to this, then write your second line. So that's pretty cool when you can have that kind of a conversation. Um, did uh, you, by the way, when you were a kid, did, did, did you were, were there personalities around Washington personalities of the day? Yeah, that, well, my my parents had a very social life, which is part of what I um, resisted. Um, but so I was, um, I met all kinds of interesting people. One, some of my, some of the favorites were ones that there's a guy named Charlie Bartlett, who's a yeah. um, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, who was also in Jack Kennedy's wedding, who was just this. I don't know. He was just was such a, a, a earthy and rich and interesting character. Um, and uh, and Jack Valenti, I knew, aide to Lyndon Johnson as a kid, also was a kind of uh, character with a lot going on. Um, and these were just my parents' friends. So their names in the history books, but they were also just uh, friends as well. And then lots of people. Good paraded. storytellers. Oh, great storytellers. Yeah. And um, and and there were stories to tell. I mean, 
it, it, it's, I don't, well, I mean, I'm sure there are those stories now, but they're, they feel a little more locked up or, or maybe I was just in, in the right place at the right time. But there were all kinds of people who, who came through the house. My, as a kid, we were um, put at the front door and we used to open the door and greet guests to my parents' parties. So I met probably, uh, I mean, I've met all kinds of people that I don't really remember meeting because I was so young. Um, so that was a, uh, um, so it's emotionally to have, uh, became, uh, closer to my mother than she died. And so, and that was 20 years ago. Um, so. And you wrote a very, I think, honest and poignant memoir about your relationship with your mom. Yeah, because I basically discovered who she was after she died because her career was essentially over, which is also part of the complexity of our relationship when you were one of the most famous people in America, basically, as being one of the only women and she was quite attractive. And um, to then have your career disappear so quickly is, you know, plus there was all kinds of other people have to buy the book. There were other challenges going on, but... She had kept everything. So after she died, I discovered her life, which also added lots of complexity. By going through her papers. Yeah, she had kept her journals from when she was a little girl. And so her journals when she was a little girl, the um, handwritten poll that um, Lyndon Johnson had shown her uh, in 1964 about why he was going to beat Goldwater. He turned out, of course, to be right about that. Letters to and from various different people. things about my parents relationship there was everything was in there um, I, uh when my mom died uh, a few years ago uh i had to get stuff together for her obit and um much like you you know i found notes that people had written to her um you know about her work from like the 50s mm-hmm. and all, all kinds of things that i never knew uh, so there was this discovery after the fact, and it was uh, it was moving. Yeah, and you end up interviewing yourself, which is you know it's sort of what do I feel about this thing that's just now happening? While you're also trying to write the story of just tell people who your mother and who your parents were. Um, so now you're a broadcaster, no, just I, like I, her. I know, I know. It's uh, it's funny. Yeah, I mean it is. And one of her press uh, best friends um, was a guy named Paul Niven who was another host of Face the Nation briefly, and then he, uh, and then he went to NBC. Um, she always used to talk about him. He was, he'd passed away by the time I was old enough to remember these names. But uh, So now it's very weird. I not only think about what she would think about all of this, but I remember how she used to talk about people in this, in this job. I mean, Niven and then, you know, obviously Severide and and uh, Cronkite and Murrow and and um yeah that's a pretty pretty high class group of people to hang around with from a journalistic standpoint yeah and she talked about them and what they believed and what they did in these really reverent tones yeah old-fashioned CBS you know 50s and 60s kind of tones about these were you know it was the golden age of of that kind of journalism and she talked about it that way and uh, so that was what do you think when you when you think back to that and where we are today in our media what have, what have we gained and what have we lost what we've lost is a little bit of uh i mean well we've lost perspective we move too fast we uh we don't um what we've gained i think is more voices if you go back and listen to some of the stuff that those great journalists said it was incredibly opinionated uh it was not as there's a bit of a myth that's grown up about the kind of dispassionate, just the facts, ma'am, journalism. Um, Eric Severide, uh, wonderful voice, incredible broadcaster. He wrote some pretty peppery things that were not mm, simply the basis of cool-headed reason. Um, And so... uh, And Murrow, you know, was, was a mover of history with his commentary. I mean, he was very instrumental in taking McCarthy down. Right. Uh, Harvest of Shame, his documentary, was a very impactful documentary about the migrant workers. Right, and- that's right. And that was a different phase. I mean, so, you know, he built up currency as a radio reporter and and, and adjust the facts, you know, from, from the bombings in London. Right, that, war reporter, yeah. That, um, 
that allowed him to then become a commentator. I mean, that's when he switched a little in terms of his voice. But I think we have more voices, which means there's no longer the Olympian truth being handed down to you, you know, which allows if there's an alternative uh, alternate view, it's good to have that alternate view kind of challenging the perceived wisdom of the of the people who've been elevated through their whatever reason to a to a high level in the in the traditional media so i like that um that those lots of those different voices um but i this thing of speed is is you know i mean i was a young reporter i covered presidential politics there were news cycles i mean you actually had you know 12 or 24 hours to consider a story Political reporters would go and get in a car and drive around states and talk to people for a week at a time, and uh, you don't. There's no time for that now. People are, you know, in the the age of social media, people are filing constantly. There are no deadlines. Um, it, it's absolutely true. And I, um, you know, I went from Time Magazine, which was a weekly. I mean, the first campaign I really covered in 1996. Uh, there were news cycles in the day, even though there was K- CNN, <clears throat> you still had kind of news cycles. You had time in between them to, to talk to voters, talk to campaign people, consider ideas, bounce things around in a less frantic environment. You grew, you developed a set of views about things that you then constantly tested as opposed to just, I- I'm just, you know, um, I mean, you let... The, what you were producing marinate a little bit as opposed to just constantly being a short order cook. Um, and that's, so when then I moved from that to Slate, which was super fast, like they wanted you to work all the time. And the editor there did this great thing, which was recognizing the downside of that. He forced us all at least once a year to go off and do a long project, mm-hmm. which where you had to just leave your beat and go do something at length. And I did, two of those projects one was on risk taking um and you got to go do the old-fashioned journalism you never even could do at time magazine but you know spend weeks with a silicon valley startup a band that was uh, making its own way uh, a, a general who actually ended up being the centcom commander um and some mountain climbers and you know being able to really go into a story and why people do things and why they're motivated and why they take risks and when restraint is important and when uh, lack of restraint is crucial and then I did the same thing with the presidency with which ended up being uh, a set of the ideas that I talked about with President Obama four years after the series ran but um, the the if you can find spaces in the current media environment as a journalist to go work it work ideas at length, then you can go back to the twitchy writing and you've still got that body of knowledge you're working off of. And that, that's that I'm thank God for David Plotz, who was the editor who forced us to do that. Who's your partner now on your podcast. Yeah, exactly. He's wrong about everything else, but about that, he was (laughs) totally right. (laughs) The, um, you know, the, the, this issue of, um, immediacy also goes to, the needs of me of news organizations and i you know i work for cnn it's a cable news uh, 24 hour operation to get people to watch uh there is an impetus to and i don't mean they're 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 i don't want to i'm not condemning my own i'm very happy there and but and i think they've done a great job on this election uh but you know events tend to get hyped beyond their their uh actual importance and you know every day is election day every and i don't mean just i mean in the whole media yeah. environment right uh, so you know this week uh, we saw the chairman of the dnc resign not a small story um but probably not one that's going to have any impact on the election but for 12 hours because nobody had anything else to cover it became the most important thing ever yeah I, yeah, no, the, the, everything you say is true. It's another reason why I was so happy to have gone off and do, done that kind of, you know, that, that long series on presidential attributes and what it takes to be a president because I felt like 
that question never gets asked. We're in the middle of a campaign. People say campaigns are job interview, but they ne- rarely sit down and say, okay, well, let's treat it like a job interview for a minute. What, do you, what skills would be required? And also, if it's a job interview, that means we get to ask all kinds of questions that the, that the system never lets us ask. I mean, gets, probe things that are you know, how people think, how they adapt, how they take risks, um, how they've worked with other people. If you actually ask those questions in a lot of interview settings, viewers and others would be like, that's a weird question. Why is he asking that? But it's central to the job. Yeah. And that was, we, we, it was really great to be able to talk about some of that with the president because it's crucial to when you, uh, you know, as you know better than anybody, the, what you face when you get in the job is different than the way that job is covered. And it's covered by the shiny thing that's easily understood that, that um, has a narrative flash to it. I mean, the Debbie Wasserman Schultz thing, ah, secret emails, Bernie Sanders getting screwed, eve of a convention where they're trying to show unity. I mean, it has all of the... The narrative fun of it, uh, but what it, what it's missing is whether this is you know a, means a, anything. Means <laughs> yes, no, I know. I uh, look. I uh, having spent a couple of years in the White House, I, I thoroughly appreciate you know what's uh, you know and and part of you the White House itself is subject to these things. You know, you spend a lot of your day trying to figure out whether you're chasing a rabbit down a hole in the media, and um, or not it's 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 um uh it's really difficult so when you're doing your job i mean you're such a thoughtful guy and i think that comes through in your on your show uh but how frustrating is it sometimes to have to feed the beast in terms of this um in terms of this sort of media environment well it it's frustrating i must say that i mean cbs is uh it's wonderful about um, you know in all the shows I work on. If, if there's a shiny object moment, and I feel like, look, let's move past that pretty quickly. It's not going to matter tomorrow. The, 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 nobody says no. We must. Now, I'm not saying we're uh, you know. No one's immune. No one's, no one's immune. immune. No one's immune. But I. But I. I. Uh, it's one something I really appreciate. The challenge, though, is when you. Um, coming from print where sometimes I take two days to interview somebody. Now I interview them in six minutes. Um, And also I think it's true. uh, I think it's true that basically all uh, uh, politicians have become so much more guarded and so much more uh, habituated to answering things in ways that aren't, that really don't get you anywhere that it means you're really, you're, you're, it's, you're sometimes just banging your head against the wall to get up to get something that's a useful piece of information that will help people understand their world. Um, and yeah, you know, I used to prepare. I used to do these things as a government official or as a political operative. And, you know, we would spend time thinking, like, if I were John Dickerson, what questions would I ask? Yeah. And, um, you know, because you're under obligation to ask certain questions because of breaking news, it was pretty predictable. I mean, not you, yeah, because no, no. you weren't there at the time, but others— uh, and so you have your questions, and I come in with my answers, and I'm not going to budge off of my answers. And you have six minutes, so you can't ask me the same question in six different ways. That's right. And it becomes kind of a kabuki dance. It does. My uh, my wife does <laughs> does media training, and she does <laughs> she does all of that uh, too. Although God love her, she, she does teaches actually people how to thwart people to, like you. They do. She does. Although the actually not the bulk of her work. Is is actually teaching people who do write about complicated stuff how to make it. Uh, she's on the side of the angels, which is to say complicated things and make it so that people understand what you're talking yeah, about, good. which is towards the conveyance of information as opposed to the, when she's helping people uh, not convey information. But, um, uh, yeah, no, it's, it, is a, it is a kabuki. And the kabuki has elements in it that viewers uh, add a part to, too, which is, you know, you put on 18 minutes about infrastructure spending in America, nobody's going to watch. Yeah. And I think there's a role – I would love – Which is a to, shame because <laughs> – Yeah, because it's – When a the sh- bridge collapses, it becomes more interesting to people. Yeah, and, and I think that we all – there's – I mean, you could easily write up the list. You and I know where, uh, where our business needs to improve – you can definitely figure out where politicians need to improve, but I think you know there is a role for voters to be um, 
to there's some changes voters and viewers need to make in terms of the way they process news. I mean, the number of people who complain about the superficiality of politicians and press coverage and then form a lot of their opinions based merely on the headlines of things they've read rather than reading through the whole thing and developing. I mean, it's big. And and the Twitter culture and um, snap judgment culture of our politics right now only encourages that more and more and more is people not sitting with an idea and trying to figure out what they really think about it. And that's that's a big thing we've got to fix. I'd love to talk more about superficiality, but I got to take another ad break. Back with John Dickerson, um, I want to talk about this election, and then I want to talk about a, a, a project that I love that you are uh, unfurling in August, uh, another book. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, Richard Hofstadter, the historian. He wrote a, a great little book in the 60s called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And um, I haven't gone back and looked at it, but I think I will. I'm glad you reminded me because he described a lot of what you would see uh, in a Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, Trump speaking to you, you – this book you've written uh, that is based on the podcast – uh, that you've uh, been doing whistle stop about campaigns in American history. Do you see parallels in the Trump campaign in any other campaigns that you've studied over the years? Yeah, I mean there are th- there are three. The biggest one is is uh, well here I'll start with the smallest one, which is when uh, you know in 1840 uh, William Henry, Henry Harrison is the first one to really campaign as a candidate, and the campaigns were totally frivolous. I mean people were drinking hard cider all day. They were big parades. Nobody was having a debate of the issues. So when you see Trump flying his plane over the stadium in which he's going to give a big uh, rousing speech, it feels yeah, very much in touch with, with that. You mean when Ted Cruz was standing there and trying to yeah, hold him? Yeah, well that was the that was one. But when at, in yeah. Alabama he had a, another speech where he buzzed, and when he's giving helicopter rides, that sense of the total circus feels like it's new but it's it's old 64 when the when the republicans tried to stop goldwater i mean mitt romney's dad governor of, yes, of michigan george romney is george romney is in the center of that effort in much the same way his son yes is. um and they can't do it because there's no real there's a great line from their governor rockefeller uh who was booed off the stage in San Francisco at exactly, that convention. Exactly, uh, as he tried to um, insert a, a plank against extremism in the party, which everybody in the audience knew was really a shot at the people who were the John Birchers and the KKK, which had supported uh, uh, Goldwater. But um, they can't get their act together, and, and Governor Rockefeller, while they're, the governors are trying, Governor Rockefeller, who's lost to, to Goldwater in the California primary, is trying to get work with these governors to find some alternative to Goldwater. Um, and he tells a story of, uh, I think, I think it's Stu Spencer he's talking to where Spencer says, you know, it's time to call in the establishment, you know, and got the governor Rockefeller says, I am the establishment. In other words, the establishment was losing and it was just down to a single guy and the momentum of the party. And Nixon uh, says to Pat Buchanan, if there's ever a stop X movement, you always want to be with X. Because what he learned in 64, Nixon was trying to undo Goldwater a little bit himself. He finally jumped in front of the parade. But he was basically saying if somebody is doing well enough that, that, that people rise up to try to stop him, that means they're doing well enough to go and win an, an election, in this case at least just be nominated. But the, but the 68 Wallace campaign comes back again and again as a, um, a couple of things. The element of surprise. People thought he's never going to get on the ballot. He got mm-hmm. on the ballot in all 50 states. Uh, people thought, oh, well, it's just a regional thing. But in the North, he was appealing to uh, – you know, in 64, he'd done well in some Democratic primaries um, – and so that was a little signal of that. But he started to do well in the North, so well that both Humphrey and Nixon were worried about Wallace because there were a lot of working class whites who were, resented the riots, peace marches, and also the African-American rising labor class. And much as we see today, and I include myself in this, elites were slow to recognize the, the challenge because George Wallace was uh, speaking to people who the elites weren't associating with absolutely and there are wonderful one of the great things about going back and reading all the press coverage from the time is there were all these great pieces of analysis about how wallace was really just a cat's paw for for johnson basically he'd convinced wallace to run just to steal votes on the law and order message from nixon and this was just like it was total fraud total setup not real um same thing they were just basically like this isn't a this can't possibly be a real effort and 
um, people misunderstood the, the sense of anger. And then also when you see, I mean, when you, when you hear somebody talking about law and order, we've been talking a lot about Nixon, as Donald right. Trump uses those phrases, but it was really, it was really Wallace who right. uh, did it and appealed to and used that language to appeal to fears that whites had about, you know, the, the raging inner cities. Um, and also one thing that's crucial then that isn't happening now is you had busing and housing. Uh, but so kids are being bused to and from neighborhoods to go to schools where that, you know, they didn't grow up. I mean, they, and that busing in the South in particular, obviously was a huge yeah. issue, but then housing too, the idea that the federal government could mess with your housing, um, those are we don't have. Now, there's that a as tremendous much. reaction to the civil rights legislation yeah. of uh, 64, 65, right. 66 was a banner year for the Republican Party. You know, in Cook County, uh, which is was very Democratic at the time, Republicans took three offices in 1966, and race was very much a driver of that uh, of that vote. So. Uh, you see echoes of Wallace, Wallace's message and Trump's message, but the country is a different country now in terms of the demographic makeup. Uh, are there enough votes out there for this kind of message to prevail? Yeah, there's, so there are a couple of things. That's exactly right. There aren't there aren't the same. Of course, Wallace didn't prevail in the end either. Right. Um, he did the, take five states as right. a third-party candidate. And no, the, no third-party candidate has done that since. Exactly. And the gamble was, or the thought was, that he would take enough states to throw the, throw the vote into the House, and then he'd have bargaining power. Um, and... Uh, uh, Nixon tried to get Humphrey to agree to whoever won the plurality in the general election would just win. So because he thought that if it got thrown in the House, the Democratic House, Humphrey would win, even if Nixon had won the plurality. But Humphrey didn't agree to that. Um, so a couple, of, a couple of things. One, you have Republicans speaking out against Trump in a way nobody spoke out against Wallace. Um, and, and, uh, nobody with anything really at, at risk spoke out. So when, when Paul Ryan has repeatedly called out Donald Trump, um, you didn't see that in the Republican Party. Um, you know, Nixon didn't call out Wallace for making racial appeals. Um, so you have so that's one change, and that represents either a change in moral focus or a recognition that you know you're offending more voters now um, than than you would have had in Wallace's uh, Wallace's time. So I think that's a big deal. I think the the other thing that there's, there's an echo, and I, we don't I don't know how the this will wash out in the end, but Wallace made. Big appeals to the unions in the in the Northwest, or sorry, in the in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, Humphrey was able, and the unions were able, after spending a great deal of money, to basically say he's not really on your side. It was great. The argument is just like today, where people analysts said, you know, Wallace is making a gut level appeal. It doesn't matter whether he's going to help these people economically. He's appealing to them by the gut, and we hear a lot of that now. How Republicans have appealed to to white working class voters. I had Mary Kay Henry from the SEIU with quite viewed as a quite progressive union on this podcast in the fall. And she said, I'm concerned that a lot of my members are responding uh, to Trump. And I think uh, you're going to see a lot of uh, labor voters uh, at least flirting with Trump around this issue of trade and uh, his his general appeal. And somehow the unions were able to beat that back in Wallace's case where uh, they were much stronger than exactly exactly they had a lot more they had more money and strength and organizing power and that's another thing that's changed but I think back to your first point which is that the the votes just I mean the votes just don't look like they're there for Trump to get as many votes as he would need out of that portion of the electorate while writing off the larger portion of the electorate, unless Hillary Clinton somehow helps him. I know you did a show on. Yeah, we'll talk about Hillary in a second. You did a uh, you did a podcast, I think, on the Wilkie uh, race in 1940. The last sort of businessman candidate, great great race with Franklin Roosevelt going for his third term, right. uh, and weak weak weaker than he had been in previous uh, elections. Um, do you see but but Wilkie was a progressive candidate. Yeah. yeah he was not a Trump figure in that way. Exactly. I mean when he his announcement when Wilkie announced uh he he boasted about how he was liberal. Um because he he wasn't going to let FDR and the Democrats say he wasn't liberal. Uh he just thought the government should be more efficient when it was helping people do all these things. And yeah. that was not, you know, that was more progressive than the than the conservatives. But but, but Roosevelt uh 
wasn't going to let him get to that square. He called him. He uh, Wilkie w- really lived in New York, but he <laughs> filed from Indiana, where he was from. Roosevelt called him the barefoot boy from Wall Street. Exactly. So uh, yeah. uh, and ultimately won that election, but ended up uh, making an alliance with Wilkie uh, around the war. And Charlie Peters has this great book. Uh, um, Five Days in Philadelphia, I think it's called. Yes, is, uh, yeah. Fitting. But but his argument is basically that Wilkie, who comes out of, you know, basically comes out of nowhere to beat uh, Dewey and Taft and Vandenberg, um, uh, ends up helping FDR, creates the conditions for FDR to have a coalition that allows to the get into to the go war. To war. And yeah. if, if he hadn't done that, the Republican Party would have, you know, t- if Taft had been nominated, he would have been less, much less likely to build bridges with FDR, uh, and also wouldn't have wouldn't have shown that inside the Republican Party there really was this interve- interventionist, or I should say, non isolation uh, non isolationist wing. That once FDR saw that, illuminated by Wilkie, because Wilkie wasn't all for the war, he was just do- for doing a hell of a lot more than he was Taft an internationalist. Yes, precisely. Um, and I that's a really that's one of the fun things about uh going back and looking at these races is the, is to is to take those turning point moments and really see how far you can run them uh even if it's not perfectly true it's a it's a great way to kind of understand the story and you've turned now you've turned this into a book so we should plug the book <laughs> relentlessly yes <laughs> <laughs> yes uh i took the i took um uh there are nineteen chapters seventeen of them are whistle stops that I'd already done. Uh, but what I learned is that a podcast does not a chapter make. So when you're writing about a lot of the forces in these races, you you have to go back and basically rewrite the whole thing, which was great, but also a heck of a lot of work in the middle of this campaign. Yeah. Uh, and then I added two brand new chapters as well. Um, and it it uh, it jumps all over the place. I mean, so for 68, I do just the Wallace campaign. I don't do the Democratic Convention, which is, of course, a great chapter yeah. yet to come. Right. I don't do Nixon... You know, I mean, you get Nixon Nixon's and Dirty Tricks and his and, whole yeah. renaissance. I mean, 1960, I just did Kennedy in West Virginia as opposed to the Kennedy-Nixon debates. Yeah. Any of, so there's a lot of material still left it to sounds be like a sounds like a great read for political junkies. It and, was, yeah, I think it, I think it is. It's, um, there's a, and there's so much to be now because you could never have written this book 10 years ago because I had a, um, basically I had this fantastic researcher who... I was a PhD history candidate at the time who would send me all the, I mean, so if I'm doing the election of 1800, he would send me the broadsheets, which are in PDF form. So I'm on a plane going somewhere and I can read the articles in the newspapers at the time. And, um, and that's true of basically all the races. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk uh, just in the remaining minutes. We have a, a, a further about this race. We've talked about Donald Trump. What about Hillary Clinton? We're sitting here in Philly. She's about to accept, uh, the nomination. Um, why has it been so hard uh, for her uh, to, uh, to, to grab the advantage in this race? Well, you know, we talked a little bit about the way in which campaigns and governing are two separate things and how campaigns maybe um, encourage us to pay attention to attributes that maybe aren't that important in the presidency. There are some that are, of course, crucial. I think in her case, I think she's just not a very good campaigner. I think she's her instincts are... Um, much more towards poli- – I mean, going back to when she was First Lady, even First Lady of Arkansas, when you read what her friends wrote about her, what she said, her interest in life seems always to have been more policy, more the um, backroom work. Yeah, Mario Cuomo said you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. She's had a hard time making the transition from prose to poetry. What's it like to interview Hillary Clinton versus interviewing Donald Trump? <laughs> Uh, well, Hillary Clinton is a lot more cautious. She's just very risk-averse in terms of saying anything. I mean, if you look at her response, for example, to the DNC leaked emails about the DNC trying to undermine Bernie Sanders, her first reaction was, I'm very proud of my campaign. You could imagine another politician saying, this is an outrage. The DNC is supposed to be neutral, and uh, I really hope they didn't do anything to help uh, you know, tilt the playing field because I wanted fair and square on my own. And I'd, I mean, you could imagine any, anything that showed a kind of immediate... It seemed like kind of a hostage drama, though, trying to get Debbie Wasserman Schultz out of the, out of the job. I mean, 
you, would, were you speaking about the 60 Minutes interview? Yeah. So this was before she... This is, right. Before right. we knew, you know, before Debbie Wasserman. That was another challenge, which they have managed. We'll see how it turns out. But they've kind of managed it pretty well, given... They, they move quickly. Yeah, they did move they quickly. They move quickly. Um, do you... Uh, find yourself frustrated uh, in inter- interviewing her? And what about Trump? Yeah, who- Trump is frustrating in a different way. Yeah. I mean, I think Hillary Clinton... Um, there, it, it, So she's just more risk-averse, which means you need to have a longer interview to kind of get where you... Do you, you ever feel like you've gotten to the sort of core there? Um, Sometimes, I mean, did, I mean in did little she ways. Did ever surprise you? Yeah, well, I... um. In little way, little ways. I mean, I once said, you know, I haven't asked such a tough question since I asked who the host of right. Face yes. Well, was how would how show. would Ted Coop answer this? <laughs> no, but um, you know, when I asked her, you know, give us three words that give people a sense of who you really are, because there's this question people constantly have that they're not right. seeing real Hillary, and she just like, which is one of, of the challenges of this convention, by the right, way, to exactly, try and, and challenge of her campaign, because as you, as you, like, I feel like an idiot saying this in front of you, but you know, people make those kind of connections. I mean, because you know it so well, they make connections on levels that are personal. Uh, anyway, she just kind of threw her arms and said, "I am a real person." I think that was a genuine expression of frustration with the process. It was a genuine response. Um, it's not unimportant because people do make connections to voter to, to politicians, not always based on their seven point plan for rising wages, but for whether they think they're an authentic human being. Yeah, it's interesting because she does have all the skills to be, I mean, and the experience to be president. But running is part of the deal, and um, and she seems frustrated with this at times. I, I don't know if you if you you must have watched the whole sixty minutes interview with Tim Kaine. But she, uh, at one point, said, uh, you know, I get treated by a different standard than everyone else, which is sort of flipping on its head what we heard all last week in, in uh, Cleveland, uh, where people say, yeah, she gets treated by a different standard. She gets treated uh, as a privileged right. uh, class. She was saying the opposite, which is I'm always the target. I get treated by a different standard. It struck me as unwise of her to say it. Uh, but I think it was a true expression of what she feels. I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I think she it's a it's a maybe it's a corollary or it's a second. It's part. I mean, the the vast right wing conspiracy argues basically there is a special effort to undo me by the right wing, and this is in a similar category, which is we I have a special standard to me, um, and I think those are uh, you know I, that that. Whether voters buy that or not, because voters, you know, on this email thing, the FBI is not, again, to get back to your point, the FBI is not creating some false standard. I mean, the FBI did their investigation. Comey said what he was going to say. The inspector general of the State Department said, we, you know, was not some kind of crazy right. uh, standard. And against those standards, that's where she has difficulty. Um, in talking to the, uh, the president, I was reminded by after the, the, uh, the Reverend Wright uh, videos came out and he gave his speech, yes. which is a worth right re- here in re-reading. Philadelphia. Yeah, and really worth rereading as we talk about race in America. Again. Yeah, I think uh, it was one. Of that, I think that was one of his great speeches. And and it, he wrote it on the fly. You know, he wrote it half wrote it the literally twelve hours before he gave it. And what's fascinating about that? Not to go down too many different roads, but um, two. One, it ends with a story. We don't hear stories in politics anymore, which just baffles me. The other thing is that you had obviously shown it was obviously from the mind of a person who had spent a lot of time thinking about race and identity in America. He so wanted to give that speech. He had wanted to give that speech for a long time, and he just he he said, "I have to do it now." And one of the reasons that in a campaign we do see a little bit of what a president has to do is that is that when there is a crisis moment or a turning point moment we get a vision of how a candidate has thought about a set of ideas over time you can't cook up that speech in five right. minutes just coming up with new ideas you need to have marinated and pawed through those ideas um over the course of time and if you're talking about national ideas that matters um but um uh i lost my train of thought on on uh well, on, Hi- on Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Well, just let's finish up on Trump uh, and interviewing Trump. So interview- you've ridden that Bronco eighteen, nineteen times. I yeah. Know. He, um, you know, I mean, the, the challenge with Donald Trump is that he'll deny things that he said in, you know, yes, the the, the day before, or even in the same interview, it's, or he'll deny he, things. He does not find tape 
persuasive. Right, right. And so on the other hand, um, and, and then sometimes when you try to talk about a fact that he's misstated or something that he said out loud that he disagrees with himself now on, it can be very frustrating. On the other hand, he will say things about, I mean, when I first interviewed him or one of the first interviews or so, he said, you know, I pay, I asked him about his effective tax rate, and he said, I pay as little taxes as possible. No politician would really say that. Uh, but, you know, his supporters give him credit for yeah. They say, well, that's, he's smart. He's right. a smart businessman. That's what we yep. need. And so on some things, he'll really – he's quite candid. I mean, I, his, the answers he's given me about on the, whether he thinks a Muslim judge could treat him fairly, yes. he said no. Whether there should be Muslim profiling, he said yes. Yes, that got a little attention. Yeah, yeah. So he is uh, quite candid on some things in a way that, that – I can't think of any other politician being that candid. Well, it's going to be an interesting four months, uh, but uh, Whistle Stop coming out in August. All of you folks who love campaigns in American political history should pick it up. And, John, thank you for being here. Thanks for um, for uh, classing, up the, classing up the political uh, scene with, with really thoughtful programming well thank you for having me and i'm not sure how i'm going to do this because i usually listen to you while i'm running uh so now i'm gonna i'll have to skip an episode because uh, <laughs> i don't think i can listen to myself while i go running well we'll try and provide other programming uh for you i don't want to see you, you you seem hale and hearty i want to keep that going yeah through, you're responsible through this for campaign. my health yes thank you Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.